I can kind of talk about AI as it relates to pretty much any technology in any industry and in any company and think about different ways that you might offset some of the labor, not, not that you would replace any title, a job title necessarily, but enhance, you know, have different and better uses of that person um, because of it. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on June 6th, is a conversation with Constance Friedman, founder and CEO of Modern Ventures, a Chicago-based early-stage venture fund focused on tech company investments and firms that are innovating within real estate, mortgage, finance, insurance, and home services. Although Modern Ventures invests more broadly for synergistic and business opportunity reasons that Constant goes into in our conversation, this is a continuation of our conversations on leading voices around technology solutions in the real estate business. Prior conversations in the series includes our two interviews with principals from Fifth Wall, Brad Grewey and Greg Smithies, our interview with John Helm from RET Ventures, Clara Brenner from the Urban Innovation Fund, our innovation with David Stanford from Real Foundations talking about implementing technologies within the real estate enterprise, and also separate conversations with the founders of Isuzu, Juniper Square, Mind Management, and other platforms. These are ongoing and important explorations on leading voices. There's a lot to listen for in the conversation with Constance, and I'll let the conversation speak for itself. The one topic that we've not hit much in our show has been a discussion on the single-family home resale market, which, as all of you know, in real estate is still what most of our mothers think we do. Constance and I get to talk about that on the show and more to come from other guests in the future on that subject. This is another big week for the ZRG real estate practice. Last episode, I announced that Larry Crema has joined the real estate practice and will be based in our Chicago office. Larry comes with some 10 years of experience in top-level recruiting and previously was Chief Human Resources Officer for both Equity Office and for Simon Properties. And this week, I'm pleased to announce that ZRG has acquired the Pittsburgh-based Helbling Associates, a retained firm focused on real estate development, facilities management, and architecture, engineering, and construction. Tom Helbling and his team bring great complementary skills and client base to our ZRG real estate practice, which I co-lead with my partner, Kevin Jones. We're thrilled with the opportunities this presents to continue to better serve our clients in the real estate industry. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and you'll find value and wisdom from this week's episode. If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, or want to get in touch about how ZRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Constance Friedman. So, Constance Friedman, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on the show. You'll laugh since it, it, at the way I'm approaching the conversation today, we've become very hyper-focused in the conversation, talking largely with CEOs of commercial real estate companies. And when I approach the conversations, I know just what I want to extract from them for our audience to talk about. And today, it's a lot of stuff I don't know about that I want to explore, and I'm guessing our listeners will be feeling the same. So I'm looking forward to you expanding my mind and our minds in this conversation. 
Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Let me make a few headlines and then we'll get started on this. So you founded and lead a technology VC called Modern Ventures that invests in prop tech and fintech primarily. You formally led a VC started by the National Association of Realtors, which is really interesting. You serve on the board of one of Sam Zell's public companies. May he rest in peace and have lots of fun wherever he might be. Equity Lifestyles. And you know he's having fun. <laughs> There's just no doubt. Of course he is. And my wife, Diane, and I are recent investors in Modern. So I really have some, A, conviction in your wisdom and let's go get them. Last point of introduction, we've had several guests in the past from prop tech companies. We've had John Helm from RET Ventures, Brad Grewe, and Greg Smithies, both from Fifth Wall, and Clara Brenner from the Urban Innovation Fund. And in some ways, this is a continuation of that conversation. So, Constance, how about if you introduce yourself to our audience, and then we'll get started in the discussion. Sure. Well, again, thanks for having me. And, you know, I guess I'll, I'll start my introduction with a little bit of a caveat in that, you know, while we certainly have prop tech and fintech and, you know, those industries as primary uh, focuses of our investment, the thing that we is a little bit different than what you said is that I would actually characterize ourselves more as generalist investors with a sector focus. So what I mean by that is we often, uh, unlike prop tech or fintech or insure tech, mm -hmm. we often generally take, we, we take a generalist view towards investing. We look at technologies really at large. So, you know, across multiple industries, where is innovation happening? What technologies is moving directions? And then we look at what can be applicable to our sectors, primarily real estate and the adjacent industries. And so it's a little bit nuanced, and but it's important to our strategy and always has been. And we've been doing this for about 15 years now. And we look at it actually about 4,500 companies every single year. We say no to almost all of them. Right. But, you know, we our, our investment focus has been on that greater that that greater world, that greater marketplace with the idea that if we find technologies that are innovating in other industries, often that can be a great indicator of what can be replicated and what can be brought into our industries. And so, um, you know, real estate, as you know, is about 17% of the U.S. GDP. It's the largest, largest asset class, you know, by dollar. And, and so it is a very big market, but it has innovated almost never. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and that, that therein lies the opportunity. But, you know, again, we've been doing this, uh, you know, I've been investing under this philosophy since 2008. And, you know, 2008 is when I launched the first fund. And 2008 is a funny time to be launching a, real, a technology fund focused on real estate, right? Mm -hmm. And that was really where this investment philosophy stemmed from. You know, if you invest in technology companies that are only beholden to the real estate sector, it won't fare well in a downturn. Mm -hmm. Now, that didn't matter much to the prop tech funds that have popped up in the last you know, seven, 10 years because everything has been going up and to the right. But what you'll see right now is that a lot of those companies that are very secular are not going to last. And that's kind of a problem, not only for the investors, but also for the industry who are customers of these companies because you want your vendors to last too. Mm -hmm. And so you know, a lot of what we look at are companies that are absolutely applicable to our industries, but also applicable to others. And so if the real estate sector, which tends to lag the rest of the economy, 
if that starts to go down in any case, you know, the companies can still be propped up by other industries. And let me, two questions as, as I think about that. One is, if you ask my mother, who you, you'll have trouble asking her, because she hit, talking about dead people today, but she's passed on. But whenever I talked about real estate, her assumption was that I sold single family homes. That was it. That's real estate to 99% yeah. of the people of the population. Most of our audiences, you know, are in the commercial real estate world. When you talk about real estate, as you just talked, as you just spoke about that, how do you differentiate between those two worlds? Because it might be 50-50. Yeah, I'll, I'll say a couple different ways. Number one, just directly, we think about all asset classes. So everything from single family residential to multifamily to office, industrial, mm -hmm. student, senior, kind of all of it. Even sort of larger than that, taking, you know, zooming way out. If I'm talking about companies that are applicable, to multiple industries, most of our companies are actually applicable to multiple asset classes within real estate. So let me let me give you a few examples. One of the very first investments I made was in DocuSign. You would never call that real estate tech or fintech or insure tech, but of course it's very applicable across all industries, across all asset classes, across all deals, and uh, just business management and operations in general. So. That's a really good example. You know, we've got a company called Stride Health, which does health insurance for gig economy workers. They power Uber, Amazon, DoorDash, uh, and the 2 million independent real estate agents who don't have spousal or employee mm -hmm. insurance. You know, we have companies like Zeal, which is, the, is actually a payments transaction platform. Their beachhead is in EV chargers, and the primary market they're focused on is commercial real estate to help uh, charge up the residents' EV cars, you know, electric vehicles. By 2030, about 50% of vehicle sales are supposed to be electric. About half percent of all parking spaces are actually EV charger equipped. Now, the problem with EV chargers today is that they're often unreliable. At best, they have about an 85% uptime. And the reason is because they need connectivity to transact. So Zeal, I told you, the payment transaction platform, they are software that lives within EV chargers. They don't need connectivity to transact. And so they can guarantee 100% uptime for EV chargers. So, um, but again, their payment transaction platform, they, they partner with EV chargers that provide a full scale EV charger solution, um, but you can use that technology and take to ATMs or POS systems or other industries. So mm -hmm. those are just a few of the examples of, of how we look at investments. They all relate, but there's often, you know, cross industries as well. It makes total sense. So, and let's go backwards for a second and talk about DocuSign. So, I, and actually, as you were discussing, since I looked through your website and stuff, I, I had said, ask about DocuSign. But when that, that's revolutionized the world of home sales or home sale closings. And when that business started, or when you made your first investment, were they thinking of first a beachhead in the residential sales business as a meaningful part of their strategy? Or were they thinking everything? Well, I'll tell you that they first started the company, they were thinking everything. Organically, it was the residential real estate agents that started using them most. Mm -hmm. So I came in to the Series B in 2009, and it was shortly you know, after they kind of realized this would be a good beachhead for them, You know, is the residential real estate space. And so this was when I was leading the fund that I launched for the National Association of Realtors. Mm -hmm. 
so 2009 was when I came into the, to the investment and yeah, we were, you know, growing quite steadily in the real estate space. I mean, we did a contract with NAR, we did a contract with a lot of the big brokerages across the country and, and, you know, really kept helping DocuSign build business in, in that space. Now I'll never forget, you know, 2010 or 2011, when one of the board members looked at me and he said, you know, are you happy with their, their, you know, what's happening with their revenues in residential real estate? And I was like, well, no, but have you seen how many transactions have gone down, you know, transactions have gone down and how many realtors have exited? And, you know, there was a direct correlation to those revenues, obviously, and, and the home sales. And so, you know, it was really at that time that, you know, DocuSign started looking at other industries at, you know, the adjacent industries, banking, at, you know, finance mm. at, at larger asset classes too. Um, I think it was, it was one of the big hotel chains that became a, an early customer for doing um, franchising. And so anyways, you know, to do that, they had to really think about not just e-signature, but digital transaction management. And so they built, you know, security grade bank, uh, bank grade security. They built 99.999% uptime software. And they were the only ones that could and were doing it at the time. And so, you know, but that by doing that, they were then able to expand in other industries. And so, you know, whereas some of the secular companies like dot loop, which was, you know, focused on just residential real estate and sold to Zillow for about a hundred million and Skyslope sold to Fidelity for about 40 million. Of course, DocuSign had a $4 billion IPO and right. at its peak was about 40. So, you know, you can see why this strategy makes more sense in terms of being able to, you know, produce returns. Yeah. It makes whole sense. I just flashed on a funny recollection, and this came from around 2009, but let's maybe it's 2007. It was in that era. I was at a hotel in San Diego at the Mortgage Bankers Association conference, and I had a fax sent to me. And I walked into the fax room, and there uh, no, people can't see this, but you can. My hands are really far apart, right, with yeah. all the faxes. And the guy said, just go in and look for your fax. Well, I rifled through about 200 faxes which included more closing documents for more deals that people yeah. were doing. I should have photocopied them all and, you know, done some corporate yeah, right. espionage. <laughs> but think of the old days. I think I was at that same conference saying, like, why aren't you guys using DocuSign? <laughs> <laughs> totally true. Okay, let's get back to your business and let's stay high level for a few minutes on what you guys do, how you do it. And I think there's three sleeves or arms to your business and they're co-related or they're related with each other. Sure. So could you talk about how that they fit together and what that means? Yeah. So we've built this platform where, you know, really at the top, we're a venture fund. So as I talked about, you know, we generally invest in early stage tech companies, uh, primarily our focus of companies that are two to 20 million in revenue. So that ends up being a late seed to an early B. And I, like I said, we take this journalist approach to investing in companies across our industries to the secular investing. Mm -hmm. Now, to help us with this strategy, we have been building a network for the last 15 years, which is now about 700 executives and corporate strong. So that's the second part of our platform is, is what we call the modern network. About half our capital comes from a subset of that group. So about half our capital is strategic investors, some of the largest companies in the world across our verticals are our investors of ours. But primarily, they're people who are looking for tech and innovation to create their own competitive advantage, you know, in their in their in their firms or in their properties. 
the third part of our platform is a program we run called the Modern Passport. And we've been running this since 2013, but it's really a systematic way to bring new technology companies into our space and connect them with that network. So this is a six month program. We run it two to three times a year with six to 10 companies per class. And, and we call it an industry immersion program. So we help both companies that we've already invested in, as well as companies that we maybe have not yet invested in. And we'll bring them through this program, connect them to our network, you know, help them really define the value proposition for our industry, you know, talk the talk, um, be able to you know, price appropriately, and, and then curate the introductions with you know, the network, people that we've you know, been listening to, our partners, and you know, where we've understood what their gaps and opportunities and challenges are in, in the real estate industry. Mm -hmm. And we can sort of curate those technologies with those partners that you know, we believe have the right fit and you know, are looking for the, the same things. And so you know, through that program, which is in some ways focused on the partners and you know, helping them create look for those technologies that are creating value. They're looking to um, get out of the tech and innovation with the companies that we think create that value. You know, if we can go source those companies that are creating the most value for the industry and connect them with those partners, it therefore helps the partners, it helps the companies and therefore helps the fund. So that's the value proposition we put together with those three legs of the platform. Uh -huh. And here's a dumb question about this, but I make the assumption that if you're picking a, a venture capital firm, venture capital investor, that in some ways you're picking a partner and you're picking an ecosystem, not just a flavor of money. And I, I think I hear this all the time when I read, oh, yeah, they got benchmark in, you know, at Uber, right, on, on the movie I watched sure. about Uber, and that that was a strategic move versus the others. He didn't like what they wound up getting because they got a lot of advice. But how much of it is purely the pricing and flavor of the money and how much of it is as the ecosystem and having you as an advisor and the rest of your network? I mean, I think pretty much all of it is the latter, right? So uh, also part of why I created this platform in the beginning, right? I mean, so back in 2008, when I was launching the fund, as any new fund should be thinking about is how are you going to capture the best deals? And I wanted to make sure I was seeing the same deals that Benchmark was seeing or, you know, Sequoia or Andreessen or NEA or any of the top blue chip funds. And so I needed to, to, so how do you compete with that? You know, how do you compete with incumbents? And I think for me, the idea was, well, I have to come up with something they don't have. And the idea was, well, if I can, if I can help my companies get customers, that's going to be the greatest value that I can provide. And if I can give my LPs who are my customers, if I can help my LPs create value for their organizations, mm -hmm. that's going to create great value for them too. And so, you know, that's really why we started, you know, we started this and, you know, not only do we see those same deals, but we get invited into those deals because we are providing customers and we don't have to necessarily compete with all those crazy valuations because we're providing something other than money that's green. We're providing that value as well. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's how we've continued to also hit good marks for our fund um, alongside the strategic value that we're creating. And it seems similar to both our ET Ventures, John Helms firm, which is only multifamily, and Fifth Wall, which was all commercial real estate. But both of them have a large investor base within the sector. So you have automatic users. It seems like it sounds mm -hmm. like a similar story, but a broader perspective. 
That's yeah. Uh, you know, both those funds have popped up as prop tech got hot, but yeah, you know, we've, like I said, been doing this now since 2008 with that philosophy, that broader perspective. And that, and yeah, I think something that, you know, our fund has that no one else has done is, is this modern passport program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it truly is a systematic way to bring those parties together. And, you know, we've seen about 190 pilots come to fruition through that. And, you know, lots of value both on the industry side as well as on the tech partner side has been, you know, created as a result of that program. Yeah. And so let's now talk about your history and how we got here. And is, first of all, is this fund a continuation of the business from NAR? Did they pass it on to you? That's question number two. And question number one is, out of school, what got you into this and what got you to NAR, which may be the beginning of the story, the most relevant part of the story? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with the, the latter one. So my history, I've got this funny background in real estate tech and venture. So I started in real estate. Um, it was a college job, but a real job. I spent three years doing sales and leasing that you know, really put myself through school. And when I graduated, uh, it was right before the tech.com uh, days. And so I uh, was very interested in tech. I spent seven years really helping Fortune 500s to come online. So I was consulting for firms like State Farm and Financial Times, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and both helping to uh, define the strategy of what their online presence should be, um, because you know, believe it or not, the internet didn't always exist. And so, <laughs> I get to just like sound really old. I was helping them exist for the first time on the internet, <laughs> and and then I was large, I was managing large tech teams to actually implement that. Mm -hmm. So I did that for seven years. I wanted to do something different, but wasn't quite sure. So business school was the answer for me. Uh, I went and got my MBA at Harvard Business School. And really there learned about, um, you know, the, the world of venture. So uh, after graduating, well, I should say, actually, during my second year of business school, I, I tried to, I, I learned that you could buy companies, you didn't have to start companies. Uh -huh. And I spent my second year actually trying to buy a company. It was a tech company that happened to be in the real estate space. And um, that was my initial plan. I was gonna buy that company and run it. I was lining my second year of business school, I was lining up investors to do that. And the deal ended up falling through right before I graduated. And I ended up joining a venture fund that was on the other side of the table trying to buy the same company. So Cuball was focused on information media and consumer uh, primarily. And so we, I spent two and a half years with them really doing traditional venture deals. And then in 2008, came across this opportunity where National Association of Realtors had just taken $50 million off the table and wanted to continue investing in real estate-related technology. So, you know, I was pretty uniquely positioned to bring together my real estate tech and venture experience back then. And so launched that fund with all with their capital in 2008. Let's back up for a second and talk about them, not you. Because in 2008, when they did that, what were they thinking? Well, let's see, a few different things. I mean, so I'll, Dale Stinton was the CEO at the time. And I think, um, you know, I'll give him a lot of credit towards, and, you know, Bob Goldberg, who's the current CEO of NAR, um, you know, together, I think they really saw the future of innovation for the industry was through technology. And obviously they had 
made a good nugget on the realtor.com IPO, um, but also their influence. You know, I think that NAR has been done a very good job at creating both influence, but also, you know, community that has done well for them in their community. And I think that what they saw, it was technology was a way to help the community continue to do business better, faster, cheaper. Something that I think they saw too, which I talk a lot about to my industry partners, my LPs, is that technology is going to happen and you can make it happen for you or you can let it happen to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think they were grasping onto the let's let it happen for us and control our destiny versus happening it to us. And one other question about this, because I find it fascinating about the realtor world. And I've always made the assumption this might be totally untrue. Is it 80% or 90%? 80-20 rule applies. 20% of the realtors, if that's, and I think it's a high percent, are earners and full-time focused mm. professionals and 80% are more casual folks. I'm going to get firebombed here at some point. But I think that's relatively true. So when the real, when NAR thinks about that, are they representing both the 80 and the, the 20 equally, or are they more pushing for the 20? I, any comments to that articulation? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question and a, and a great perspective. And I'll answer I'll answer it in a couple ways. Well, I'll answer it from an NAR perspective, and then I'll answer it from like a broker's perspective, mm-hmm. uh, because the ecosystem is huge, right? So, right. you know, when you think about the constituents of single family residential real estate, you've got the associations, but then you've got all the brokers, you've got the MLSs, you've got, you know, all the, all the, and the agents, of course, themselves. From NAR's perspective, every member is a member. They're all paying their dues whether they're the casual or they're the, you know, full-time, you know, the real workers. Mm-hmm. So from an NAR perspective, you know, every member's a member. Now, if you're a brokerage, you're focused on those 20% of the, you know, that are bringing in the, bringing in the dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think depending on who you are in that ecosystem is, you know, who, who you care about most. And it's such a huge inc- ecosystem of business. A, that does, has a fear of disintermediation, but B, prop tech or whatever the right word is, fintech will hugely impact that because of the number of granular transactions is humongous. Yeah. So let's talk about disintermediation for a minute because people have been talking about that for a really long time. Yeah. You know, the technology has existed for more than a decade to disintermediate the real estate agent, but it hasn't happened, right? So yeah. in 1980, about 80% of uh, consumers used a real estate agent. Do you know what percentage of consumers use a real estate agent today? Got to be higher than that. It's actually higher. Yeah. So the technology exists, but it's not happening. And so, you know, why is that? A handful of reasons. You know, number one, it, for most people, the real estate transaction is the largest transaction they'll ever do, or ever be involved in. And people want that assistance, they want that help to navigate through that. And, you know, they don't know how to sell their most meaningful asset or they don't know how to negotiate the purchase of one. And so, you know, the real estate agent is still playing a really important role. There's a lot of people out there. I mean, I started telling you about, you know, like how we're different than prop tech, but I'll tell you how we're also different from generalists. You know, we're we're different from generalists because we see these, these patterns. You know, we've been doing this and only this for 15 years. 
And, and so, you know, while there's a lot of the generalists who have bet against the realtors, I've always looked at, you know, we, you can actually make a lot more money if you're partnering with them and providing value to them because they're going to all be consumers. <laughs> and not only that, will they be consumers, but their, their, their clients will be consumers and, you know, the organic growth, you know, of experiencing something during a real estate transaction and then bringing it to, with you to work, you know, is powerful and meaningful. And so our bets have been on the ones that are actually enabling them, not disintermediating them. And, you know, those have, that, that's worked out very well for us. Yeah, it's interesting. We've we've traded houses too many times, so real, the realtor world loves us. But the last two or three homes that we've wound up buying, my wife wound up finding online, giving to the broker. And you'd think, well, why do you have a broker? Because we found the house. Same thing happens in recruiting, right? Our client will say, hey, I sure. found the candidate. Well, no, but we did the work with you to make some decisions, help the decisions, help the process, yeah. make it a meaningful process. But it's fascinating. So the disintermediation risk is kind of there, but you're right. People still want a wise guide and it's not automated. Maybe it's going to be, we'll yeah. get there in a few minutes. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that the, what technology can do in this case is add value to you know, bring people to the high, their highest and best uses, right? You don't need a search technology anymore. And so you don't need to have someone's time to search for a place for you. What you need their time for is to help you in that negotiation or help you think about you know, what price to sell it at in the first place or you know, help you find a good broker, mortgage broker or whatever to actually get that deal done. Right. Okay. So we're back in 2008. NAR puts away $50 million now that we've discussed the philosophy of what NAR is in that world. And you are chosen to lead and run this effort. And it's right before the GFC. So take us back in history and think about what you were doing then and besides DocuSign. Yeah. So, you know, initially my first thought was to be traditional prop tech. Yeah, you know, it really was thinking, well, we're going to do real estate tech. And and then, you know, it became pretty clear pretty quickly the things that I said, you know, uh, well, you said it, right? 80% or I'm sorry, yeah, 80 percent of the deals are done by 20% of the agents, right? So, you know, I think back then the, it was a million realtors. While there's a million realtors, which seems like a really big market, only 20% of them, only 200,000 are actually doing the work. And so if you're a technology company going after that market, it's not actually a huge market. It's, you know, you, you, they have a finite number of dollars in their pocket and, you know, only so many products are they going to purchase for $9.99 a month. And so, you know, you can't really become a really big company if you're going after just the real estate agent. And so, you know, that was a bit of an aha, but also realizing that, you know, real estate is cyclical. And while the last 10 years, you know, all these funds and, uh, you know, both generalists as well as secular funds have popped up saying, well, everything's going to always go up and to the right. The truth is it doesn't mm -hmm. <laughs> until it doesn't. And so, you know, you see a lot of deals that got done that shouldn't have gotten done, but that was really what helped form the philosophy of saying, well, let's take a broader aspect, not only across this asset class, but let's start looking at other asset classes and let's, you know, not just look at, um, our industry, but, you know, the truth is that the things that value, uh, benefit our industry are the things that benefit of almost every other industry. And so if you look at just the fundamentals of, you know, a business, you know, what are the things that you care about? You, you care about, you know, business generation. You care about, you know, lead gen to get that new business. You care about referrals. You care about, um, you know, sales. You care about 
business ops, you know, you care about execution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you care about financing and there's always an insurance transaction element to it. And, and so, yeah, if you think about the life cycle of a real estate transaction, it's no different than, you know, all those things that any business needs to care about. And so if you start to look at technologies that are creating value for the just business challenges in general, then you can start broadening your view quite a bit and start looking at, you know, either it's a technology that's doing it. So maybe that's an AI driven technology or it's a robotics driven technology, or it might be a business case like workforce optimization or senior tech or, you know, aging tech. So in any case, you can start to look at this broader base of technologies and bring that to our industries, which is what we've done. Yeah. So that, that's what really started to form the investment philosophy and broaden my view of looking mm-hmm. at what deals we should be doing. That's the view I took. And then shortly after I started doing these, as I started making these investments, that's when I started to kind of realize, you know, a couple of things. So some of the accelerators were popping up like Y Combinator, 500 startups, you know, uh, others. And I was thinking to myself, you know, those accelerators are popping up trying to help startups you know, really create product market fit and ultimately get investment dollars. And the thought I had to myself then was the companies I'm looking at, they seem to have product market fit, but what they need is customers. And, and so that's when I really started the passport with this idea of, I understand the problems, challenges, and gaps that the industry is trying to solve for. If I can find the right companies to do that and connect them Mm -hmm. to customers, that should create a lot of value on both sides. And so that's really when I started the Passport was back in 2013. Mm -hmm. And so we started to systematize that. I was at first doing that one off with our portfolio companies and with the partners in the industry, I was starting to, um, you know, relationships I was starting to develop, but, you know, I really systematized, systematized it and you know, back then it was called Reach. Um, that was the that was uh, the program that I started when um, back with NAR, and which we now call the Modern Passport. So, 2008 started the fund. 2013 started what's now the Modern Passport. By 2015, I'd fully invested their dollars and decided to spin out with the same philosophy, but with a much broader LP base. And so um, we now have some of the largest real estate companies in the world, uh, you know, but also strategics from the adjacent industries as well, who make up about half our LP base. The other half is traditional financial investors, family offices, high net worth individuals, so more traditional financial investors. And um, we launched Modern Fund One in 2015 and Modern Fund Two in 2020. And uh, recently launched Modern Fund Three. And is there? I don't know if your business uses AUM as its measure or total dollars raised. Yeah. Any sense of that? Yeah. So the first fund was twenty million dollar fund that was in 08. 2015 was forty. Twenty twenty we were oversubscribed at two hundred, so we were targeting one twenty five and ended up closing at two hundred. Mm-hmm. And Modern Fund Three. Will will be a two hundred fifty million dollar fund. Um, we're actually uh, going to follow that with an opportunity fund to double down on our highest growth companies. So that's kind of the first growth fund, uh-huh. and um, that'll be a two to three hundred million dollar fund. We haven't quite launched that yet. 
Cool. And let's go back for a minute, because I'm, I'm thinking something as you're describing these technologies and the, what the real estate industry can offer those technologies in that 80-20 thing. But one of the things I'm thinking of is that the industry, whether it be single family residential, that 80-20 we talked about before, or broader in commercial real estate, we're pretty well organized and most people in the business approach it in the same way. So I would think it's a wonderful target market for something that's going to go big to start, either in B2B, which is commercial, or B2C, which is the resi stuff. And I'm wondering how many of the things that you funded are businesses that are large outside and want to come into our business. I'm guessing that's not the story because it wouldn't be early stage. But other businesses that are early stage, they either know it or don't know it that this is a great place to start, but then you use it to get them started here and we become their crucible to prove their value proposition. They could just jump out again. Comments on that? Yeah, there, there definitely, there's definitely both. We, you know, I said our sweet spot is two to 20 million in revenue. We reserve 10% to invest in companies that are a little bit later and 10% that are a little bit earlier. So, and because we sit where we sit, we see the spectrum of all of them. So I, I would definitely say both. A lot of, we think about outside in as well as inside out. Mm -hmm. So outside the industry and bring them in versus inside the industry and, and right. start to push them out. So let me see, maybe I can give a few examples. You know, we have a company, a, a more recent investment that we made in a company called Measurable. Mm -hmm. And Measurable is an ESG specific software. So they are the global leader in ESG data capture, reporting, and and really resource optimization, so rec recommendations. So as you know, real estate is one of the largest emitters of carbon and users of energy. 40%. And you can't fix it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've even heard it higher, but yeah, at least 40%. And you can't fix it unless you can track it. Mm-hmm. And so Measurable is one of the only platforms, uh, technology platforms that allow you to do that. So they both tap into the building systems as well as utility and energy data, grid data to capture it to begin with. Mm -hmm. They provide reporting data, a reporting platform for you know, the operating purposes as well as for regulatory reporting and investor reporting. And then they're, they, they recently made, well, the, the third part of their platform is really a recommendation engine. So, you know, you think about the HVACs and the water filtration and, you know, other building systems, you know, they can track the efficiencies of those vis-a-vis -vis other options and, and make those recommendations as well for the operators to fix and, and, and fit. So that's an example of a platform that has primarily is primarily focusing on real estate. Um, you can certainly see mm -hmm. the opportunity to go into other markets as ESG. All that information is is valuable to, well, not only I would say like for, for our industry, but you can also start thinking about how you use that data for things like ratings and, you know, other, other uh, data or other information purposes, um, as well as extending into, you know, kind of the core business extending into other industries as well. So that's an example of something inside that could go out mm -hmm. in a broader way. Something that's outside going in, I will talk about Caribou. So Caribou is a underwriting platform for auto refinancing. 
Mm-hmm. So give me a minute and I'll, I'll bring it to real yeah. estate in a minute, but you know, really what they do, the backdrop is this, they have you know, about 80% of people who purchase a new car finance mm-hmm. and almost hundred percent of those people do so through the dealer in which they, where they buy it. Mm-hmm. Now the dealers aren't making their money anymore on margins on the car. They're making all their money actually on financing and warranties and things like this. So when you walk out of that dealership with your new car and your new car loan, you don't really have a good deal on your financing. Mm-hmm. So it turns out the credit unions have made their bread and butter kind of for, for decades on, on refinancing those loans. But of course, the credit unions don't have any digital underwriting or, or customer acquisition models. So that's really where Caribou fits in. They are the platform for credit unions to do that digital underwriting and, and customer aggregation. You know, they work with partners like SoFi and NerdWallet and the real estate channel. So how is it the real? And, and then what they'll do is they provide a referral fee of, um, uh, upwards of one to two hundred dollars for any loan that gets referred to them. So if I'm uh, in the real estate industry, I can be a referrer. Almost every real estate company has affiliate marketing channels, and so I can refer this to my resident. I can refer this to an office tenant. I can, re- you know, I can refer this to my agents or their clients, and the referral fees come in as ancillary revenue. The other interesting thing about this is that, you know, for particularly for say an apartment owner, the number one item on a consumer's expenses or, you know, on their, on their P on their consumer's P and L is um, the number one expense behind rent is their auto loan. And so on average, Caribou is saving consumers about $1,200 a year on their auto loans. So if I'm a if my resident is now now has $1200 more of disposable income, I now have a higher quality resident and I might even be able to charge them more rent. So um this is, you know, kind of a double benefit to the apartment owners. Um but just a value add overall that I can provide for my my clients and and then, you know, like I said, get that ancillary revenue to boot. I thought you were going to take it into then they can help do automatic underwriting for single family loans. That wasn't where you were going, though. They they certainly could, though. Yeah, that's that's another opportunity. Have you heard of Isuzu? Are you, and have you invested huh? in Isuzu? So, uh, well, Mimo Abbey was on our podcast about six months ago. Great, great conversation. Yeah, great, great founders, great company. We came across them when their valuation got a little too high for uh-huh. us. So <laughs> we did not invest in them, but certainly have high regards for them. It's interesting. I, I have a story for everything. And this story was really, really strange. And, and I'm going to mash up two different stories of one week. I interviewed a guy who had been a used car salesman. I swear to God, and went into multifamily asset management. And he talked about how used car salesmen would had a term we're going to bury them in the car. That was a word that they use. And the guy, and he said, I can't basically selling someone a car they can't afford, but they didn't care Mm. because they got the commission. They sold the car. Then the next week I interviewed a guy for a credit job or a CFO. It was a CFO job. And he worked for an auto finance secondary market company. And he told me that 40% of used car loans are bad out the door. And they underwrite them to be bad out the door, 40%. So bury the bury the customer in the car, bury the customer in the loan where they're assuming it's going to go bad and it's priced into everything. 
It was one of the most more upsetting moments I had ever. Yeah, that sounds terrible. I was just sitting there going, oh, my God, our financial system is upside down. And it particularly is for, you know, for lower income people, because that's what their financial literacy issue and other really fundamental issues in our economy. So. Sounds like a you know a lot of the same thing that happened with the mortgage loans in 2010. Exactly, so. same same deal. Yeah. So let's change the subject. In passing, you said the the letters AI, and so let's talk about what that means in these businesses for you, and what might be coming. And if we went as we fully embrace it, because if we we can't fight it, we're going to embrace it one way or the other. How this will impact your business and the business of our listeners. Yeah. So AI is not new. You know, we've been investing in it for a decade. What's new is it's become even smarter and, you know, kind of leaps and bounds smarter. But our philosophy on it hasn't fundamentally changed. um, But I think the progression of it is going to move much quicker uh, now than it has in the last, like I said, the last decade. So what I what my philosophy has always been about it, what I think is fascinating and really interesting about it is that it can help us do our jobs better, right? I talked about uh, also, you know, like we don't need search anymore. You can use that that consultant for your more higher and better uses of time, you know, if you call your real estate agent consultant. But I think that's just as fundamentally true across everything that we do. You don't need an analyst to crunch the numbers if, if AI can do it for you. Let's use that analyst for higher, better uses of their time. Or, you know, sales, you don't need that salesperson to do cold calling if AI can do that for you or nurture those relationships or target those relationships. There's there's plenty that, can, that AI can do across the whole life cycle of the transaction. Mm-hmm. And we've invested in companies, AI companies across the life cycle of the transaction. Um, and so, you know, and, and I think that's that's the value that you're trying to capture from AI. I think that what the sort of new generation um, you know, generative AI can do is you know, sort of amplify all those things. And if you're not thinking about how to bring generative AI into your business, you are behind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should be implementing it by now. And so, you know, I think that, yeah, the technology itself already, I think there's some clear winners and, you know, maybe there'll be more, but, you know, I think the most, maybe one of the most interesting things about it is how people will use it to do, to uh, amplify their own products and services. And so anything from a technology company to a traditional real estate company, I think that, you know, so for example, we went through our whole portfolio and we said, all right, where are opportunities that we can enhance the products and, you know, the product roadmap through AI and where are there risks because someone who couldn't compete with us before might now be able to compete with us mm-hmm. um, because of the technology. And so we spent, um, you know, a good amount of time going through our portfolio for that and, you know, coming up with some pretty, you know, interesting, uh, interesting things around it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have, um, uh, you know, like we can think about like, for example, icon, right? Like, so icon does uh, 3d printing, they 3d print homes. And so, you know, when you think about 3d printing a home, you know, you're, you're using robotics and you're using uh, AI to generate those 3D designs. And, you know, you can suddenly create 
you know, much, um, you know, broader catalog because of it. When you think about companies like, when you think about just, you know, any data company, like I talked about measurable a moment ago, you know, you can start to use AI not to just capture the data, but, you know, run different scenarios and learn different scenarios around, you know, when a system should turn on or shut off or, you know, like that that's already a lot of that grid optimization is happening, but you can do so much more efficiently um, using AI technology as an example. And so anyways, I can kind of talk about AI as it relates to pretty much any technology in any industry in any company and think about different ways that you might offset some of the labor, not not that you would replace any title, a job title necessarily, but enhance, you know, have different and better uses of that person um, because of it. It climbs people up the learning curve, which has what has happened with information technology generally is workers have to become information yeah. workers and smarter workers. If we spend our time, this politically dangerous comment, but if we spend our time worried about people who will lose their jobs versus how this optimizes mm. and gives more opportunity, then we're in a dangerous place because we're resisting that which I bet is inevitable. And so then we figure out how we all be busy and have meaning in our lives after all of this stuff takes over lots of our time, which it's going to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, technology has always progressed faster than people are willing to accept it. And so, yeah, you know, the political backlash against it. I mean, there's cer there's certainly things to be concerned about, but yeah, I, I think, you know, we should, we shouldn't, we should accept things for the right reasons and not, yeah. not the wrong reason or not, <laughs> not the opposite for the wrong reasons. I'll push back on your comment. It's, it's both faster than we can accept it or it's faster than we know how to adopt to it and use it sure. well and thoughtfully yeah. and we certainly don't have the moral institutions to deal with the moral ripple effects of this stuff that we're woefully behind on understandably yeah. because it's changing light years fast and we're resisting a lot um, yeah, that's been an issue lately. So go back to a couple things, and then I want to change subject again. But talk about Icon, just as an example. So you have a company that does 3D pin printing, and I think of buildings. I think my wife actually saw one of your properties, which is why oh, yeah, I Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Because she was blown away. Maybe she met you, so she was blown away by this. But how does – talk about that business generally, and then how AI changes that. Yeah. So I'll just talk super high level, but, um, you know, well, let me talk about what they do. Mm -hmm. So like I said, they 3d print homes. They started really focus on, I guess their very first home was more on the affordable housing side, right? So, uh, dignified housing. And, um, they started working with a charity called new story where their, the new story mission was to turn slums into communities mm -hmm. and new story would crowdsource funds to help them do that. And, New story initially was crowdsourcing that for sticks and bricks. And then, you know, Icon, uh, actually New Story became Icon's first customer to be able to build faster, better, cheaper. And, um, you know, using robotic uh, construction and intelligent construction to, uh, to build these homes um, faster, better, cheaper. So, yeah, so they started doing that. They did a, a big community in Mexico with New Story. They subsequently built another community in, in Austin, Texas, with a uh, charity group called First Community First, helping with the mission to get homeless off the streets. Mm -hmm. 
And, and then they started building uh, mid-tier housing and then luxury homes. They're currently building a 100-home community with Lennar, affordable mid-tier and luxury. They announced at South by Southwest a uh, hospitality hotel and residences uh, at, in Marfa mm-hmm. called El Cosmico. And so, you know, they're, that, that's sort of one section of sort of the, the residential real estate home builders. Um, they're doing built to rent communities, uh, SFR communities, uh, and, then, and then these um, hospitality communities. So that's number one. Number two, they do a lot of work with the military. They built the largest military barracks. They are, uh, so they're building um, infrastructure and housing for the military. And number three, they are building uh, simulated habitats on the moon and Mars for NASA. Wow. So they're going, this company's going to the moon literally and figuratively, okay. I believe. <laughs> so. Does that mean that the, the printer that would otherwise sit on my desktop sits on the moon and then that printer's printing out buildings, but it's a little bit bigger than my desktop? But, a little bit bigger than your but, desktop, But you yes. put the manufacturing facility there that is then printing sure. the structures. That's right. Yep. And how does AI and, come into And, you know, it's really this? interesting. Well, kind of uh, in, in many different ways. You can think about it from anything from design to, you know, how to help the printer know what material, how to change the materials when it's printing the concrete based on the climate or based on the environmental factors or, you know, is it raining? Is it cold? Is there a sleet? Is there, you know, anything that happens in real time, you know, that AI can be, you know, creating optimization to make sure that the print is perfect every single time. You know, something gets in its way, it can, it can, uh, you know, adjust for that. It can, um, you know, so kind of all across that, that the, the product and business of, of icon AI can start to make adoptions for. So let me make a guess at what you just said. So it's an interesting one. So I'm thinking that this printer is printing something using concrete kind of materials. And I'm thinking that it has instructions, but on a cold day, it changes the mix a little bit, or on a wet day, it changes the mix. And that might save 2%, but 2% is a lot of dough. Yeah. And, and make it, uh, also, you know, just the, the spec, you know, that, that actually ultimately gets printed is going to be higher quality as a result. Mm -hmm. So there's a chip that might do that kind of thing. If it's a chip or a thing or a thought process embedded in the world in lots of different places. That was just an example. That's right. Okay. Did I interrupt your, your concluding your comments about Icon? No, I, it's a very fascinating company. I encourage anyone to go look at it. It's great. How do you spell it? I-C-O-N. The website is Icon Build, and uh, YouTube is full of really cool videos. Okay. We'll watch that. So different question. When we started the conversation, you talked about real estate, the real estate universe being one of the laggards in adopting technology in the in, in our overall global economy or in the U.S. economy, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, one of the themes of both a podcast and the theme of my career, because I really started my career I start, in the 80s, but in the 90s, I started getting intelligent about what this business was. And then when the 90s hit, we started to have a more institutionalizing business. Data started meaning something. It became non a mom and pop business size and scale started dri- driving the industry. And those were all themes of Sam Zell. And we're going to talk about him before we end this mm. conversation. But those have been the trends of the entire industry. And now we have all of the technologies that you're talking about. 
but we're slow adopters. And think particularly about commercial real estate, not resi stuff, because we've been talking a lot about resi stuff. What is the low-hanging fruit, or what areas do you see that we really start to move the needle in terms of adoption and change within the commercial real estate investment world, investment and operations world? So it's a really good question. I will take it back again to sort of the various elements of a real estate transaction and mm-hmm you know, what do I care about as an owner operator of commercial real estate? So, you know, starting with site selection and development, I think, you know, we can use AI, we can use data, we can use a lot of different technologies to help us determine what to build and where. Uh, We have a company called TestFit, actually, that just started in our uh, Passport program. If you, you can enter the, the site and talk about what you want to build. So you want to build an industrial building, uh, you know, garden style, residential, mm-hmm. high rise. You can put the type of property that you want and it will optimize the number of units for that asset on that site. And, you know, give spit out, you know, several different potential plans that you could use as a result. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's an example of technology, like just starting, you know, we have a company called Unicast that helps to track demographic data and consumer information and, you know, sort of uh, where people are getting dropped off at night. So, you know, where the next place is that, you know, that kind of the next population hub of where you might want to build your next, your next property. So you can start to use data for the site selection um, as, as one example. Construction, we sort of talked about some companies like Icon or others that are uh, optimizing, um, you know, not only robotics for construction, but you know, companies that are technology that's helping to build for quality, helping to assure things are, are done right. Uh, there's plenty of construction tech that's out there. Mm-hmm. Now the building's built, you can start thinking about, well, how do I make most efficient lease-ups? And, you know, there's technologies out there for everything from finding the target customer to nurturing those leads, um, you know, closing those leads, using virtual tech uh, tours and technology, like you can do a whole lot without ever actually physically being on that asset. And, you know, residential, commercial, you know, office, industrial, like any of the asset classes can use this. Signing a lease is still a huge burden. (laughs) So that has a lot of optimization opportunities. And then, you know, when I'm living in an apartment or I'm, I'm I'm a tenant in an office building, yeah, there's all kinds of things you can produce, do to um, optimize that consumer experience so that maybe this isn't a place to live, but it's a destination. Or maybe it's, you know, more like a, a hospitality play or, you know, I've got a company called Hello Alfred that provides concierge mm-hmm. services for consumers. We have a company called MoveEasy, which does everything from helping you to schedule that move, to schedule the elevator, to secure the insurance, um, you know, make sure you've got the renter's insurance that's, that's done all, all properly, all the way to, you know, getting a designer, getting the furniture and ultimately moving out. So that consumer experience is suddenly much better. You know, we've got companies like, um, you know, LeaseLock, which provides for, you know, especially for the affordable housing, I don't have to pay my one month's rent. I can instead pay $19.99 a month which makes a, a move more affordable for me, but LESAC will still ensure the owner of, you know, for any rent loss or damage. So anyways, we can think about the whole, and then, you know, disposition of the asset eventually and thinking about sales and 
you know, I, we call a lot of things like future proofing the buildings, you know, whether it's like with managed Wi-Fi or right. EV chargers or, you know, building that infrastructure such that when you go to sell the, com- the, the building and there's still a lot of asset value or even maybe increased asset value because of the technologies that you implemented into it in the beginning. And so, um, and then of course, just even operations and and so on, like things like measurable and, and other operational tools that I can use to make me more efficient. These are all things that, um, you know, I think that industry can and should be using to create more value for themselves within, uh-huh. within the world of commercial real estate. It's interesting. I asked you a simple and broad question and I was looking for three or four data points and you did what I love to do, which is you <laughs> broke it into 10 segments and then in each segment you drilled down and you could go, you can lose yourself in the lease up process in all the forms of real estate and come up with 15 technologies or 15 things that could be optimized from tenant acquisition through the lease itself it's and through touring and all of what you described. So that was yeah. a wonderful explanation. One of the things that we're obsessed about equally to AI is work from home and what that means for our office buildings and what that therefore means for our downtowns and where that's going to settle out. And, Technology fits a lot of that stuff. So I'm wondering yeah. if any what you're working on has relevance to that question. Yeah, I, I certainly think it does. I mean, I think, you know, we're ultimately dealing again with something cyclical. You know, I mean, there was a flight to the suburbs a long time ago that became a flight back to downtown. COVID induced a flight to the suburbs again. And so, you know, and, and certainly technology enables work from home, but I, of course, don't have a crystal ball. Mm -hmm. I think people like to be together. People are social creatures. And I don't think office is dead, but I don't know that office will be the same size as it was. You know, I think office is different, Mm -hmm. you know, in the future. I think hybrid is a real thing. And I think that that probably stays. A lot of what I've been hearing from the experts is that the way to make a comeback in office is to make it a destination. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, we've been talking about work, live, play for a long time. And I think technology feed certainly has a place in all of that. So now it's work, live, play plus destination, I guess. And I certainly think that, you know, the class B buildings that don't have a significant technology play in them, you know, mm-hmm. wh- why bother? You know, you're always going to want to go to, the better, hotter, hipper spot. And I think technology plays a role in what that is. So everything from, you know, um, mobile instant access to having easy, you know, I guess having those environmentally conscious and friendly buildings to, we hear a lot about like events focused things. So you know, being able to easily sign up for my wine tastings and my social gatherings, my non-work related things at work, you know, all, all that stuff I think is, is going to be important for office, you know, when it does make sort of its comeback to attract the best tenants. I, it's interesting on the subject as you, as you were say, saying that, all of which I agree with, if the goal is to use those things to make it so everyone comes back five days a week, I think we're misguided. If mm. those are all together to make people come together when they need to be together at an average that will be less than five, then I think it's dealing with reality in the right way instead of reality to go yeah. back to a past that's not going to recur. 
Yeah. And scheduling and optimizing the space, you know, that, that all plays a role with technology. So whether it's, you know, kind of hoteling at the desk or, you know, making sure you're scheduling the conference room for, you know, the right people or, you know, having the events or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, certainly technology optimization plays a role in all of that. Yeah. And it becomes not separate technology somehow. So you don't have 500 apps to do the thing that you want to do. You sure. have two, three, four things within an ecosystem that you live or you operate your office building or when you get to work, you deal with that okay. stuff. That will happen. Absolutely. So you've been associated with one of Sam Zell's companies and he just passed a few weeks ago. We, we re uh, released the episode when I interviewed him about eight years ago or six, six years ago when we started leading voices. Any comments about his legacy a and then the business that you're involved with and why your background and perspective that we've been talking about was interesting to the is interesting and valuable for their board yeah so i mean sam zell obviously uh you know a, a legend and you know someone i feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to get to know and as you said serve on a board with um you know i we similarly released a speaker series. He was the very first person I, I interviewed on our speaker series and, you know, did the same thing. I, I was speaking at a real estate CEO conference on Monday after he passed and, and Sam was supposed to be on stage at the same time, actually. Mm. So I, I brought him to stage. I, I, the zoom interview that I did, I, I, I played a few clips of Sam and, you know, I was happy to see that the rest of the conference, people seem to reference some of the things he said, you know, I think people will always remember some of the things that he said and the lessons learned. And, you know, he certainly, I think was inspirational, not just really as a real estate leader, but as an entrepreneur, right? Like he both saw the opportunities, but also had the grit to go after them. And, and the conviction. So, you know, a lot of great things to learn from him, you know, I guess, including, you know, why, why am I on that board? Well, I think he and the executives around him, you know, realized that they were looking at, uh, so equity lifestyles, they are the largest, um, you know, uh, mobile home camping and RV park, you know, company out there. And, why is the technology person, you know, working with mobile homes, right? So um, I think it's because they realize that for innovation and for them to grow and, you know, continue to have competitive advantage, they're bringing technology into all of their, uh, you know, mm -hmm. sites too. And so everything from their active living senior communities in the, in the mobile home uh, sites to the campgrounds and RV parks that they operate and, and marinas, um, you know, technology plays a place in attracting customers. And mm -hmm. if you have trouble, you know, reserving or you have trouble uh, checking in, or you have trouble looking at the amenities or getting online when you're there, those are all things that, um, you know, will lose customers over time. So, you know, they're actually one of the most active users of technology that I know, um, in the real estate space. And I'm, I'm really proud of them for that. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully I've had some influence in helping them think through, uh, some of the, some of the use cases to help them build their business. That's great. We had the president and CEO, CEO of Sun Communities on the podcast. And it's interesting to think about what you just said, cause you might, it's really affordable housing or it's leisure housing as well. And 
you might think that th those users don't need technology, but that's crap. Those users want technology absolutely hugely and effectively. So it matters everywhere. Absolutely. So last question always on leading voices is um, your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. So my advice is this, just show up. <laughs> it's, it's easy to try to take those calls from home or work from home, but I'll tell you that, you know, the people that you sit next to and rub elbows with and happen to see at a conference and happen to meet, you know, when you just are going out trying to do anything, like those are the most important relationships that you build. And I see, uh, I've seen, you know, time and time again, you know, the opportunities that, you know, I find half the time are just because I showed up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it, it takes, you know, it doesn't, at least for me, success never just came, like you have to make it happen. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, it, it's, uh, it's important to get out there and, and get it done. It, it's interesting. Um, I'm the advocate of five days a week isn't going to happen in the office, but I'm not the advocate of not showing up. And I am the advocate of relationships matter. And relationships happen in the interstitial time. Is that a word? In the moments in between when you're not doing oh, something you got to do, yeah. then you f start to form the relationships. And it just takes time and it takes rubbing the exactly elbows right. and coming again and again to it. And careers are built from those relationships. That's right. So totally agree with that. Thank you. Wonderful advice. And just show up as you did today. So thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> your being on the show. Thank you for having me. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices. <laughs>